our our scripture for today is found in Isaiah 10. We can go ahead and turn Isaiah 10. I suppose we can get reading in verse 20 all the way down to the end of the chapter. When you have that, please stand in the reading of God's word if you are able to stand in and then you can look in your heart In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O oh, my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end, and my anger will be direct to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip, as when he struck Midian at the rod of Korah, and his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder, and his yoke from your neck. And the yoke will be broken because of the fact. He has come to Ayah. He has passed through Migron. At Migmash, he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass. At Giba, they lodged the night. Raman trembled. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Calvin. Give attention to Elisha. O poor Anathoth. Madmena is in flight. The inhabitants of Gibeah. Flee for safety. This very day he will hunt it up. He will shake his fist at the mouth of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will allow the vows with terrifying power. The great and height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the pits of the forest of the past, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. You may be seated. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that as we consider this passage, that you would show us the truth that you have for us here. I pray that you would be with all the hearers of this word, you would open your hearts, and you would receive your truth, joy, and I pray that you would be with me, and that you would give me words that clearly expose what you have provided for us here. In Jesus' name, amen. In the mid to late 1800s, there was a Spanish friar in the Philippines. His name was Alonso Lajave. Uh, Alonso Lajave was a fairly typical Spanish friar. He would not do any Spanish friar duties, praying his Spanish friar prayers. And then one day, uh, that all changed when he received a very valuable gift. A captain of a ship that had come into the port of Manila gave him a Bible. Now, there's little doubt in my mind that uh, Lajave had seen the Bible before. However, this was a special Bible because it was actually in Spanish. You see, at the time in the Philippines, because of uh, Roman Catholic rule, they were not allowed to read the Bible in any language other than Latin. So Alonso Lajave had never read the Bible before himself. 
And so as he read the Bible, and he began to see the true gospel, and to realize that salvation came by grace through faith, not of grace, he began to teach this to the people of the Philippines, a little north of Manila. But as other friars found out, they told him to stop, and he refused to stop, and he continued preaching the true gospel. And so they arrested him, and sent him to Spain, we tried and executed it. Now, I've often wondered what that voyage would be like on the ship, going to Spain, going to a certain death. I don't know exactly how long the trip took back then between the Philippines and Spain. I imagine it was at least weeks, if not months. And so, there he is on the ship, headed to a certain death. Now, what is he doing? He must be praying to God asking some way out. And yet, nothing's coming. He gets closer and closer and closer to Spain. But this child doesn't let up. The oppression of those who seek to execute him for, for reading the Bible, for preaching the gospel, uh, none of that is letting him up. But then, finally, when he made it to Spain, he received wonderful news. Spain had become a republic, and so the, the wedding between monarchy and the Roman Catholic papacy had dissolved, and that power to execute him no longer was there in Spain. So he was a free man, freer than he would have been if he had remained in the Philippines. And then he used that freedom to begin translating the Bible into one of the native Philippine dialects. I feel that this voyage that he was on is a good analogy for a lot of the trials that we go through. We're in this trial for a long period of time, we may pray, and yet there's no letting up until the last moment. I've gone through many trials in my life the last few months, even years, and I don't know if I can bear it. But God always provides a way of escape for his children. And I know many of you are going through difficult things right now, especially because of the pandemic, it imposes all kinds of financial concerns, all kinds of job concerns. And these, of course, are not the only sorts of trials of depression that get to us. We as a church are going through a difficult time right now. Difficult time figuring out how to go about worshiping God as we want in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of governments deciding what kinds of restrictions they place on us. And sometimes I wonder how are we going to make it through. And we know that if we are God's children, He will provide a way of escape. If we are His children, these trials will end. And there is a world of difference between being in a trial that will eventually end and being in a trial knowing that it will eventually end. The former is unbearable, it's miserable. The latter is perfectly bearable. And this is what is addressed in this passage here in Isaiah 10. In Isaiah 10, and uh, in the previous passages, if you remember, Assyria is coming toward the land of Judah. They have, uh, they have destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, and now they're threatening Judah itself. And the people don't know whether or not they will be able to make it through. As they see God refraining from protecting them, handing them over to Assyria, it doesn't appear that they will escape. And then God assures them, for those who are his children, he will find a way of escape. He will end the trial. So, as we look at this passage, I would like us to see that 
Scotch Charles all the time in, and then knowing that end is there makes the child perfectly bearable. So we're going to see God's fury, we're going to see the end, we're going to see the king reversed against the enemies of God's people, and then we're going to see the freedom that results from that. So let's go ahead and begin here in this first verse where we see Assyria becoming more and more of a threat to Judah. And God, God is going to assure them that this will end on the basis of his character, on the basis of his sovereignty and his character his children. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end. And this is my idea of him once again. So it speaks to God's fury. God's fury is that power by which sin is reduced. And this world of all the pain and suffering that we endure is God's fury. Now it might not be uh, God's fury against our particular sin, if we're experiencing something, it might be a fury against someone else's particular sin. However, anything in this world that is pain and suffering, is God's fury against sin. And, and so, so what end can there be to this? God assures the people that they are his children, it will end. He says, oh my people, to be God's people is to have his name attached to you. You see, at the time people imagined there are various different gods, and these different gods have their different people. And so if the people is defeated, that means that God is defeated. And so God assuring the people that you are my people, that means that I will not be defeated, so therefore you will not be defeated. And though the people may experience great destruction, they will not be defeated because they are his children. And he says, you who dwell in Zion, Zion being a rough synonym for Jerusalem, but particularly referring to the temple, to God's house, not only is God's name with the people, his house is with the people. And he would not see his house destroyed. So he assures people because of their relationship with him, because of their status as his children, as his people, they can be assured this trial will end. But that's not how it often feels when we're experiencing God's fury, right? When we're experiencing God's fury, it's uh, very difficult to see that uh, he still loves, right? When you feel God's fury, and you imagine that as being anger directed directly towards you, it does not seem that God loves you. It doesn't seem like he has a good plan with what he is doing. But yet the Bible says that if you are his children, that fury ultimately works for good. It is not ultimately directed against us. It will be reversed against the enemy. It is not ultimately to harm us before we're good. He also appeals to his proven character says, so do not be afraid of the Assyrians when they strike at the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. The Egyptians were one of the people's greatest enemies throughout their history. The Egyptians had enslaved people, and it seemed impossible that they would ever be taken away from us. And yet God, out of his love for his children, out of his commitment for them, delivered them from the Egyptians through Red Sea. And he heals beyond his care and his proven character. He heals Perhaps most importantly of all, to his sovereignty, to his power over all things, 
to control all things. things. Just at the very beginning, it says, he calls himself the Lord God of hosts. Now we've spoken about this many times here, Isaiah. As a reminder, to be the Lord of hosts, hosts refers to armies. A host is an army, so host is multiple armies. He is a great power God, full God, with many armies. Armies of angels, greater than any human army that might be threatened, and greater than this army of Assyria. And we also see God's sovereignty in this mention of the rod and staff. It says, when they strike with the rod, they lift up their staff against you. Now, now, someone, someone first coming to this passage to read, I'll say, well, that doesn't sound like God's sovereignty. That sounds like a serious sovereignty. That sounds like a serious power. Uh, isn't that terrifying? Assyria has this power to conflict with people. Yet, in context, Isaiah has already explained that that is not properly a serious power. That is God's power. If you look back at verse 5, we covered this several weeks ago. Verse 5, it said, Woe to Assyria! The rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Think about that for a minute. This is not a serious power, the power by which they assault and threaten. That is not their power properly. That is God's power that he has given on loan to them. If you think of this as a serious power proper, that is uh, perhaps less than God's power, but on an equal plane, uh, continuing, competing with God's power, you might be inclined to fear. However, if you understand correctly that this is not uh, a distinct power outside of God that contends with them, but is instead his own power that is on loan, well, then that could be a great comfort. That could be a great comfort to you. Consider this. In the 23rd Psalm, David was willing to say, Yea, though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now what rod and what staff was David experiencing in the valley of the shadow of death? In the valley of the shadow of death, you're not experiencing you know, wonderful blessings being poured out, like he describes later in the Psalm. You are experiencing power in the hands of the enemies. He is describing being afflicted in the valley of the shadow of death. The way David experiences that rod and that staff is indirectly from God through his enemies, yet he finds it a comfort knowing that all power is ultimately God's. Just like in this passage, the same rod and the same staff being wielded by Assyria is ultimately God's. And that can go from being something that puts us in great anxiety to something that assures us great comfort because every time we see great power used against us, we see some oppression used against God's people, we can be assured that is just a taste of God's own power because it is His power on loan to the enemy. Whatever trials you have in your life, you might look at a relationship that seems so difficult, so impossible because you can't do anything about it. It's the other person who needs to change but yet, whatever powers are in play in that relationship, keep the key things from being amended, the key things from being harmony. These are not powers that 
are outside of God dealing with them because there is power on loan. Whatever oppression uh, you may be going through financially or work-wise because of the current crisis, any of those things are not ultimately powers outside of God, but His powers on loan. Understood rightly, understood from God's perspective, where you are seeing His sovereignty at work, trusting in Him, knowing that He has some purpose behind it. Those powers can go from being a great cause for anxiety to great comfort. You can say with David, God walked through the valley of the shadow of death with very many people. Your rod and your staff God's fury has an end for His children. And if you know that and embrace it, you make your child perfectly bearable. Not only does God's fury end, but His fury will also be reversed when it ends. It will turn away from His people toward His enemy. Continuing verse 25. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end, and my anger will be directed to their destruction, and the Lord of hosts will wield it against them, a wit. As when he struck Midian at the rock of the world, and his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. So the fury will come to an end, and his anger will be directed to their destruction, when we turn uh, out of Assyria's hand, and then back on Assyria itself. And he describes, uh, he offers a couple of examples to explain what it will be like. He says it will be like Midian, it will be like Egypt. I just spoke of Egypt. People who were enslaved, the Egyptians, were led to safety out of the Red Sea. And this is not just talking about the people being led to the safety. This is talking about the destruction of the enemies. Remember, Moses lifted his hand twice, right? Moses lifted his hand once so that the, so that the sea would part. But then when we were on the other side, Moses lifted his hand again. And God, working through that sign, uh, swallowed the Egyptians up into the sea, defeated their armies. And with Midian, this refers to Gideon's army of 300 men and defeated at midnight. If, you are, uh, if you're not familiar with this story, what happened is uh, Gideon had a large army which he was going to fight at midnight with, and God, uh, through various means, told Gideon to whittle down his army just to 300 men. And with 300 men, they were able to defeat the large army of the Midianites, not even by attacking them directly, but just by shouting like torches. And the Midianites all attacked each other and killed each other. You see, in either of these situations, either Egypt or Midian, both of them are marked by God's action without man's action, with only man's uh, nominal participation. You know, lightning torch, raising hand. What God is saying is that the fury will be reversed, and it will be entirely His work, entirely something that He is doing. You see, this victory will not be accomplished by us uh, trusting in ourselves, uh, operating in ourselves, defeating the, the oppressing powers that are against us. Those oppressing powers are great. I've already explained why they're great, because their powers are alone from God Himself. They are great powers. We must trust in God to deliver us from them. What is your go-to when you are oppressed? Is it to try to fight the situation itself? 
or is it most immediately to trust in the Lord that He may require things of us, He may ask us to do things. But ultimately, the victory is His, the battle is His. We must be going to Him in prayer, relying on Him. This reversed fury. This would be, once again, a great cause for comfort to God's children. If you ever seen one of those action movies where uh, near the end of the movie, the good guy is getting humbled by the bad guy, and the good guy's got a smile on his face because he knows something the bad guy doesn't, and the bad guy, uh, you know, is becoming more and more unnerved by the fact that the good guy is smiling and laughing off the pummeling. This could be your situation for a child of God. You don't have to be anxious. You don't have to be strong about the pummeling that you're receiving because you can know that God's fury will be reversed onto the enemy. Every power that oppresses us now, it will be reversed. Whatever power, perhaps it's sin, some kind of sins in your life you struggle with. And Satan, you choose yourself as heaping guilt on you, letting you know the sin and how, how shameful it is. Yet you know if you are a child of God that this has already been taken care of, that Jesus Christ has already provided forgiveness. And that power of accusation that Satan wields is ultimately power from God because God is the one that people have to answer to, not Him. And when that power is reversed, what happens? We are no longer the subject of the accusation, because we don't have witness in Christ. Rather, it is the enemy on the last day who will be accused and who will have to suffer. Now, I'm not saying that we should be convicted of our sin in this life, but as we suffer from guilt, we can rest assured knowing that that guilt was borne by Christ on the cross and that that power of accusation will turn away from us against the enemy. And so we do not have to suffer guilt in this world because we know that it is already been taken care of. Now this, this uh, fury ending, being reversed in enemies, it then results in freedom. And he speaks in freedom and in this 27th verse. And then that day, his burden will part up your shoulder and his yoke from your neck. And the yoke will be broken because of that. And on this whole passage, beginning in verse 24, began with the therefore, right? It's coming out of this previous passage. This previous passage that said that destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. Letting us know that God has a purpose in this fury that he's dealing on. He has a purpose in this affliction that is often directed at his own people. And that uh, that good thing that he has in his purposes is righteousness. And here it is described as freedom. It speaks of the burden, you know, the, the oppression of Assyria on Judah. It speaks of yoke, referring to slavery, right? A yoke is something that you put on an ox and have to keep him, um, to keep him harnessed to the plow. It, it is what makes the ox a slave to his master. So this, this is talking about oppression and slavery. These things will break off. And what says, uh, because of the fact, and in some translations that you say it in the meeting, uh, you know, oil, that, that kind of similar words, some people aren't exactly sure 
what this means, but either of these, the idea is God's blessing, either God's blessing with anointing, God's blessing that makes the child happy, or possibly, and quite likely even, in action, because of the us sitting there, not doing anything, once again, only having nominal participation in the victory, and God doing, God accomplishing victory himself, this is the means by which people will be delivered from their, their oppression and set free. Now, this whole time I have been uh, speaking of God's children, having this assurance that these trials will end and will resolve in freedom. So it's important to understand what it means to be a child of God and where the power comes to become a child of God. This is not something that we are naturally or naturally born. Uh, children of God. Not everyone is a child of God. We have no guarantee naturally that trial should end. There is no reason why God should let the against those who have sinned against him. Instead, that period has ended for a particular reason, because there is one who is not a son of God secondarily or by some action, but naturally a son of God. And that uh, one and only special Even though, uh, you know, we're talking about 
uh, those of us who are not his children, right, or when, before we were his children, being deserted in his fury, that makes sense why he would direct fury against us. Then why does he direct fury against those who are already his children? What is his purpose in, in doing these things? He is blocking all pride. He is calling us to trust more and more in him so that we can fully enjoy and fully appreciate the great salvation that he has given. You know, consider the pattern before, before we were saved, prior to salvation. You go about your life experiencing uh, the effects of sin in this world, and it does those people more and more, and you don't know how you bear through them. That is a good God himself saves you when that final last shred of pride is coming and you are ready to trust in him. You know, he is the one doing that, lopping off every bit of pride so that you can appreciate his salvation, that you can enjoy his salvation. That is his purpose. And we see a picture of that here in the remainder of this passage where he's going to describe the pride of Judah being taken away. James, if I could Said in verse 15, the axe of Assyria. 
But yet, this is the one that I handed the majestic on, and the other one we call the majestic on, that is God himself. So as he's cutting off all the pride of the people, yet he is just assured them this will end. And it finally ends, right when there's nothing left, no pride left, the people will just stop. And we are not going to get too much into this path, but I want you to take a look just at the next verse. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, but a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Jesse being father of David, David being the great grandfather of Jesus. This is his grand salvation. Once all that pride has been taken away, once all those branches have been cut off, the people may experience salvation. God is humbling people so that. It would be saved. That is his work. That is why he does this. And it's not just a, a matter for those who do not yet know him. As I said before, if you don't know him, there's, there's no identity. But even for uh, those who do know him, you will experience pain and suffering in this life, and maybe currently experiencing great trials. The reason why, because God seeks to have every last vestige of pride. The more and more that you rely on him, the more and more you will be able to experience true joy, knowing the great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. See, God is the creator. We depend on him for everything. If we thought that we ourselves were sufficient, we would not be able to know the truth that we are not. We would not be able to enjoy things as they are, things as they ought to be. So God, in his great wisdom, the far surpasses a man, besides drawing them into him this way, by humbling them, bringing them to repentance, and then saving them in Jesus Christ. And if you can have assurance that that trial, the trial is like the end, even though you may experience many trials in things like they will all each end to one day, final and one end. We will be with him. We will be with Christ forever. We will receive our body back from the grave. And we will have perfect joy and peace forever. I mentioned before Alonso uh, Lajade, right, the Spanish friar in the Philippines. After, after he had made it to Spain, he was able to translate part of the New Testament into one of the Philippine dialects. He decided he would come back and share it with uh, the Filipinos. And so he did. And uh, he didn't get far at all. Uh, his first week there, he was poisoned. And then his body was left behind the street, so he died an ignominious death. And, uh, and then later he was buried. Now, you might like, look at this and say, well, doesn't that just negate everything we're saying? We're talking about him being delivered from the trial while he was on the boat. You know, head of this game. How come he wasn't delivered from that trial? He was. He was. He is with the Lord. And one day, his body will raise a new, perfect, incorruptible. And the Lord of is in perfect peace and joy right now with Jesus Christ in heaven. And that is something that if we know, if we have great assurance of, if we know that this trial will end, we need to have great comfort and great anxiety. 
you wonder how it is that he was able to go to the Philippines knowing that he would be persecuted, knowing that there would be repression, even being triggered by How was he willing to do it? What gave him comfort? What gave him the assurance? He knew that his child would end. Even if it was not in the guarantee of his continued existence on this earth for the next however many years, he knew that his child would end, and indeed they did end. And if you want that kind of courage, if you want that kind of peace, you must know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You must be united to him in faith so that you can be a child of God and know that God cares for you, and know that God's fury will end and turn over your enemies. If you do not have this, you do not have anything. But if you do not have this, then you have great salvation in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father, though it is difficult to do, we thank you for the trials that you put us through because we know that you are sovereign. We know that you are doing great things for them. We ask that you would take away our pride, that you would grant us humility, that we might fully know your love and care and your power. I ask that you would hate the day that we would see you son and be able to enjoy a perfect, peaceful existence with him and all God's children. And I pray for those who do not know him, that you would grant them repentance, that you would show them the truth, the only way to be forgiven of sins, to have eternal life. It's in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.